You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem, bismillahir rahmanir rahim. I seek refuge in Allah from Satan the Accursed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Samar Anjali Sahmed, and God willing, we will be with you all the way up until 9 o'clock. So if you do have any questions, any remarks, any comments that you'd like to make, please feel free to do so. The number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878. And of course, you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Remember, the number for you, like I said earlier as well, is 0208-687-7878. And we would love for you to get involved, so do pick up the phone and give us a call. Uh, Remember, this is your radio station, and we'd love for you to get involved to voice your opinion in regards to whatever we are discussing during the day as well. Um, if you are familiar with The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station, you'll know that we usually, especially on Tuesdays, we usually speak about three topics and we're doing the same today as well. Um, the first topic we're going to be discussing is disease and hunger in Gaza, how other factors uh, are raising the death toll in Palestine um, and then after the news, we're, the 8 o'clock news, we're going to be discussing Afghan deportations from Pakistan, a looming human rights catastrophe. Um, and then last but not least, we're going to be speaking about how one in five children and young people aged between 8 and 25 years of age had mental health disorder in 2023. So... Some very interesting topics, uh, some very important topics as well. So if there's uh, anything that you'd like to share your own opinion about uh, when it comes to any one of these discussions, then please feel free to do so. Remember, the number for you as always is 0208-687-7878. But before we get into those, Jalees, how are you doing this morning? Yeah, Alhamdulillah, by the grace of Allah, I'm doing well. Um, Health is good and and the day is good. It's good. Bit of a cold start actually to mm-hmm. to, uh, to Boxing Day, I guess we can say today, twenty sixth December. Um, but yeah, uh, by the grace of God, I'm doing well. Very good, very good. Um, and what's the? Uh, I mean, I know you touched on it as well, but what's the weather looking like today? Uh, yeah, so basically today will be uh, dry with sunny spells uh, for most. A few wintry showers are expected in the far north of Scotland. In the afternoon, the far southwest of England will see cloud and rain move in. Tonight, could um, it's possible that cloud and rain would continue to spread northwards. Uh, this will also fall as snow for many parts of Scotland. Um, but the far north will still escape largely dry, turning windy. Moving on to Wednesday, which is tomorrow, wet and windy, including the far north, uh, snow mainly over the higher ground of Scotland in the evening and from the west. The rain would start to clear and be replaced by blustery showers. And now an outlook for Thursday to Saturday. We see that Thursday and Friday will be unsettled and windy with scattered showers feeding in from the west uh, these will remain uh, main these these will mainly affect uh, uh, scotland uh, northern ireland wales and western england 
Further east, the showers will be more occasional. However, the far southeast of England may have longer spells of rain on Friday. Saturday looks to be a drier, brighter and colder day across the UK. So again, a bit of a cold weather for the upcoming days uh, throughout uh, England. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is expected, isn't it? It's uh, coming to the end of the year now, just a couple of days left. Uh, before we uh, go into 2024 and just a, as as a side note um before we get into the headlines it's a, it's a perfect opportunity for us Jalice, isn't it in which uh, we can reflect uh, upon our year i mean uh, <clears throat> there's a narration of the holy prophet muhammad may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him in which he said that no two days of a believer should ever be the same and on this occasion where we most of us the, the vast majority of us we have New Year's resolutions, whether it's about climbing up on the corporate ladder at work, whether it's uh, getting fitter, whether it's eating healthier, whether it's uh, um, strengthening our relationship uh, with our with someone who we've fallen out with, whatever it might be, whether it's a religious thing or a non-religious thing, a secular thing. We should take this opportunity, and we usually do, we, we, we take this opportunity to better ourselves and make these resolutions in which we try to be the best versions of ourselves, as, as all of these um, social media stars as well, influencers, they always tell us as well. But um, this is something, uh, Jalees, like we mentioned from this narration of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, something that we should be doing on a regular basis. Something that not only do we do once a year and then when it comes to February, uh, then we've already lost our determination. We've lost that uh, that enthusiasm that we had at the beginning of the year. Rather, His Holiness, um, um, the, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he always instructs us, whether it be on a personal level or in uh, group audiences that he has uh, with uh, with the Ahmadi members, um, especially students, um, when they ask about how we can better ourselves, how we can um, make sure that we utilize our time to the best uh, of its ability. Um, he always instructs us that uh, you should, what you should do is before going to sleep, you should, uh, whether it's mentally or whether it's uh, physically writing it down, reflect upon your day and think about all the things that you did during the day. Think about where you maybe wasted a little bit of time or maybe where you could have been a little bit more productive. And when we do this on a daily basis, then of course, we will be able to make the best uh, use of our time and be the best versions of ourselves. Indeed, indeed. I mean, of course, when we do it every day, um, we are in, a, in essence reminding ourselves that you know the next day is, uh, you know, uh, for, for the next day I should try to make my uh, life even better. For example, the hadith that you mentioned, manistawa yomahu fahuwa magbun, that whoever's uh, two days are similar, then of course there there is a state where a person should reflect on. Um, of course, meaning that every day we should be. Uh, moving one step closer or a step closer to to making um, ourselves uh, you know better in 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 whether it be in our matters of faith or or, or uh, as human beings um, and like you mentioned doing this every day and and as you said um, his holiness has also men- mentioned this as well that we should do this every night because then there's less chance of one to 
you know maybe fall back or or forget or or become lazy i mean there's a there's a well known joke about uh, new year's resolutions where someone says that my new year's resolution is to to fulfill what i had promised uh, last year mm. which i could not do the year before <laughs> right so so there's there's these sort of things where where you know we uh, as as new year new year does arrive we do uh, enter that stage where we reflect upon ourselves um and and try to you know make our year better and and ourselves better and um, of course if we are doing this every day then there is more of a chance of of uh, you know achieving uh, greatness in life and and just one tip that i would that i would possibly give to anyone who's who's uh, trying to uh, make any new year's resolution is that often we find that um a person would make uh, a resolution they wouldn't they would they would start off with uh, too much mm. um which then they find maybe it's difficult for them to keep up or they find days where they would feel that okay if i skip one day it's not going to make a difference and then that becomes a recurring pattern and and then they they forget altogether so what i would suggest is start with small things and this has been you know uh, attributed to various um uh, people who have who have who have uh, talked about this as well for example there's a very well known saying that if you want to uh, have a great day or if you want to make a great change in your life then start by making your bed um and and this is something that that psychologically has an impact on oneself when they do the first task of the day then it sort of becomes uh, this uh, they sort of uh, and and uh, they they materialize or manifest a a domino effect where they've done one thing and they are able to they are able to do more it's the same with when a person goes to the gym early in the morning they know that they have accomplished the first task of the day and they feel more energized to do more during the day and of course anyone who's read the book um atomic uh, sorry I, I believe it's is is escaping my mind uh, atomic habits i believe that's what that's the book called where the the author of the book he uh, mentions they mention um that making small changes within our lives uh has a great impact and you know these are very very tiny minute things that we can do whether it be reading a, instead of a chapter a day you can read a, a paragraph a day um you know whether it be uh you know running 2 3 miles it can be maybe just running uh you know one lap uh, whether it be you know anything if you start with something small then by the end of the year by the end of the month in fact or and even de- most definitely by the end of the year you would see a great and huge impact so of course again just to uh summarize uh you know if anyone is there who wants to do any new year's, re- new year's resolution then they should start with something that is uh doable and something that is easy and something that is consistent and that again was understood by the holy prophet may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him who said that um the when it comes to matters of faith and 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 uh, various other matters he said that you know those things which are uh consistent even if they may be even a little that is more pleasing to god than someone who does too much but isn't consistent so i um recommend our listener to to always remember this and and hopefully in the in the new years they do find um themselves becoming better in their everyday lives most certainly most certainly beautifully put it's all about having those achievable uh, targets uh, often we 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 
a uh, bite off more than we can chew isn't it we just yeah. we set out targets for ourselves which are uh, unachievable and uh, due to that we, we 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 might be trying our level best uh, but because it's something which is unachievable we we might say that we want to let's say your resolution is to lose 10 kilograms um you might say that you want to do that within the first week well obviously that's that's not going to happen isn't it that's impossible um and so then it needs to be an achievable task small things like you said um and only then will we be uh, along with all the other things that you said being consistent and all these other things only then will be will we be able to achieve those resolutions as well um let's quickly go through the newspaper headlines all is forgiven and Tories face new Farage threat. Um, many of Boxing Day's front pages feature images and stories about the royal family attending the traditional Christmas Day church service at Sandringham. Um, All is forgiven, uh, quote-unquote, is the headline on the front of the sun as it reflects on Sarah, Duchess of York, being publicly back at the heart of the royal family after joining the king and queen at church. The former royal, who has had tr- a troubled relationship with the monarchy, was pictured smiling and glancing towards and uh, towards the waiting media as she walked beside her ex-husband, Prince Andrew. Mm-hmm. Sarah Ferguson also waves in a picture at the top of the Daily Mail. Next to that image is a snap of royal fans being treated to the sight of the Prince and Princess of Wales walking hand in hand with their children, Prince George, Princess Charlotte and Prince Louis for um, Sandringham House on their way to St. Mary uh, Church. The main story focuses on the King's Christmas Day speech, urging a plea for peace as he reflected on conflicts in the Middle East and in Ukraine. Elsewhere in other domestic news, the I newspaper reports Nigel Farage's Reform UK is vowing to go toe-to-toe with the Tories in every seat at next year's general election. The paper says the party, which contested the 2019 general election as a Brexit party, but failed to win a single seat, has given cast-iron guarantees, quote-unquote, to top figures that it will not do a deal with the Conservatives. Mm-hmm. Tuesday's Times also carries an image of the Prince and Princess of Wales walking hand in hand with their children and the daughter of Zara and Mike Tindall at Sindrigam. But the broadsheet's main story centres on Labour pondering a watertight, quote-unquote, alternative to the Tories' Rwanda migrant plan. The paper says Sir Keir Stammer uh, will set out his vision for that country next week as his party tries to combat Tory claims it has no plan for the small boat crisis, quote-unquote. A striking image on the front of today's Guardian features a number of people taking a dip in the sea off the Cornish coast. As up and down the country, thousands braved the cold to take a festive dip. The lead story on the broadsheet is a warning that the health of England's children is at risk, quote-unquote, due to fro- uh, uh, from policy uh, inaction, quote-unquote, on obesity, according to a report commissioned by the government, which the paper describes as, again quoted, damaging. 
King of Peace, quote unquote, is the headline on the front of Tuesday's Daily Mirror as the tabloid looks back on Charles' second Christmas message since he became monarch. This is accompanied by a photo of beaming royals at Sandringham and below a heartwarming story of Ukrainian refugees thanking Brits for taking them in as the conflict continues to rage against Russia. Catching an eye on the front of Tuesday's Daily Telegraph is a young Prince Louis holding hands with his second cousin Mia Tyndall as they led uh, members uh, of the royal family to church in Sandringham. The paper's lead story says menopausal women are three times more likely to be offered hormone replacement therapy, HRT, in some parts of the country than others, leaving the NHS under fire for subjecting patients to a health lottery, quote-unquote. King Charles and Queen Camilla are pictured on the front of Tuesday's Daily Express, waving at royal fans at Sandringham on Christmas Day. The tabloid's lead story carries a push from top Tory backbenchers who insist interest rates must be slashed, quote-unquote, in order for the UK to swerve a damaging recession, quote-unquote. It says, Former Cabinet Minister John Redwood and ex-Tory Chairman Jake Berry are among the MPs quoted in the paper. And uh, finally, rats on the front of the Daily Star are not uh, so stuffed after a Christmas dinner. Instead, the tabloids cite claims from uh, a motoring firm, RAC, the pests are scoffing, quote-unquote, cars by chewing through wires and insulation in several places. Also catching the eye on the uh, front is one woman braving the chill for a Christmas Day swim in the sea, but with temperatures still above the bone-chilling numbers usually seen off the coast. Um, so that is the roundup uh, of the news. Um, just quickly, um, Jalice, uh, is there anything that you, you wanted to uh, address before moving on to our our first main segment? Um uh, whether it's one of these articles or um, about cr- cr- Christmas, we were talking about Christmas um, uh, offline as well before before going on. Um, was was there anything that you wanted to uh, address? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, of course, Christmas um, just did go by yesterday, and uh, you know, there's a there's a whole there's a a talk surrounding the birth of uh, Jesus, um, who whom we believe to be the prophet of god um the, the 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 talk is exploring the 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 clash between you know traditions and historical evidence now uh you know christians uh his, christian history implies that the messiah that uh, that jesus of nazareth was born on 25 december uh luke um in the bible states that uh, caesar augustus had commanded to hold a census at that time for which Joseph and Mary travelled from uh, from Nazareth to to Bethlehem, and this is where Jesus was uh, born. Uh, meaning that Jesus was, according to Christian history, was born on uh, 25 December in Bethlehem at the time when the first Jewish census was conducted under the command of Caesar Augustus. Now, I mean, there's a whole um, debate. There's a whole uh, there's a whole um, story behind the the census as well, whether it happened on that year or. As some um, history, you know, tells us, maybe it happened seven years later, but that's another issue. Of course, right now I'm I'm just focusing on 
on the, the, the as the Christian history implies that you know, 25 December was the birth of uh, the the of Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth. But as Muslims, when we read the Holy Quran, the Holy Quran states that Jesus was born in the season of the ripening of dates. And this has been mentioned in the Holy Quran in um, the chapter of uh, uh, Surah Al-Maryam, the chapter Surah Maryam, in fact, the chapter of Mary. A whole chapter dedicated to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, you know, the Holy Quran says that uh, Jesus was born in the season of the ripening of dates, and December, of course, as we know, is not a time for the ripening of dates. Rather, it is July and August. Moreover, we find that um, you know, God Almighty told told Mary about a stream of water as well, where she could give a bath to the newly born child and cleanse herself as well. Now, this is mentioned in the Holy Quran, right? From this, when we come to know that it was the month of um, so, so this and various other factors, we come to know that the month that Jesus was actually born in would be July or August. Otherwise, it would have been unwise to take a bath herself and, and give a bath to the child at the stream in such cold weather of December as, like I mentioned before, 25 December being uh, obviously is very cold, especially in a mountainous place like the the, the north north of um, Arabia. Now, that's what the Holy Quran says. Okay. Now, if we look at the Bible, if we look at Luke's um, statement about the uh, about shepherds, we find that um, while narrating about the birth of Jesus, um, it's it it is stated in in one of the Gospels um, in Luke. Um, in fact, I'll mention that, and I'll quote, um, he says, uh, it says, Now there were shepherds in that region, living in the fields and keeping the night watch over their flock. Now, it's obvious that it was from this statement, if we if we study this, and there's various other statements as well, but just I'll be focusing on this, that you know, if we read this, it's it's obvious that it was summer instead of the extreme winter because the weather in Palestine in December is not only very cold but also extremely rainy and foggy who who now who can accept that in 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 such weather the shepherds had come out in the fields along with their flock right it is clear that it must have been summer now from this obviously what Luke had mentioned, this is what we can deduce, but this is what we can we can come to know. However, if we look at the the Peaks commentary on the Bible, which was um it's, is a is a one volume commentary on the Bible, which was first published in nineteen nineteen. Uh, while commenting on on Luke's statement, um, uh, it, it says that um that it, it could not be the month of December, and that the tradition of Christmas Day was initially found in the west had begun sometime later right, again um in the book the rise of christianity uh the, the bishop of birmingham ernest williams uh he writes and i quote he writes that there is uh, no uh, there is uh, no authority for the belief that december 25th or 25th december was the actual birthday of jesus if we can give any um, credence to the birth story of Luke with the shepherds keeping watch by night in the fields near Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus did not take place in winter when the night temperature is so low in the hill country of Judea that snow is not uncommon. After much argument, our Christmas day seems to have been accepted about 
300 AD. Now, this was um, in The Rise of Christianity, published in 19, uh, 1948. So, with all this, we can see that um, the, the Islamic stance, what the Holy Quran has said about the birth of Jesus being in a time where date uh, dates are are ripe and um and obviously where uh, mary the mother of jesus was told that there is a stream of water there where she can also cleanse the 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 child to be born um with all this all these factors and there are various other 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 factors of course uh, mentioned we we can come to know we can we can see that um the, the the birth of of Jesus whom we believe to be the the messiah and the prophet of God almighty um must have taken place in either july or august um because obviously the 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 facts mentioned in 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 the the holy quran and of course in and 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 various statements in the bible uh and by luke uh, luke statements which i have just mentioned right now clearly you know highlight if we if you really study it we can see that it's it's in fact not december 25th because it's extremely cold but um either july or august and um you know this is just uh, the islamic take on this this is what the holy quran has said as well and uh, it's something that really it, it's something to ponder over as well as uh, we do we have just gone by christmas yesterday um it's something that we we should really um ponder over because if it's mentioned in the bible as well um then it's something that of course um the world in fact um who do who do celebrate it um do, should uh, really really think about as well most certainly um uh i mean beautifully put there from uh, chapter 19 of the holy quran uh, chapter maryam chapter mary um and uh, luke um from um, from the, from G from the bible as well um we can see how um from not just from the islamic perspective but from the christianic uh, uh perspective as well we can see that both of these um these books lay testimony to the fact that uh, his birth was not in fact in december where it would have been minus temperatures in bethlehem um rather it was uh, during the the summer months in which like you mentioned it would have been wise um to 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 wash yourselves um outside in the stream rather than uh, doing that in december of course where it would have been very chilly uh, if not uh, freezing as well um let's get into our first main topic now we do have a lot to to cover um and we are talking about some very interesting topics as well so if anyone who does want to get involved with our discussion then please feel free to do so the number for you as always like i said earlier is 0208-687-7878 and of course you can hit us up on our socials on x formerly known as twitter and on instagram at voice of islam uk just a quick uh, reminder for you the three topics that we're discussing today our disease and hunger in gaza and how these kind of factors are raising the death toll in palestine um the second topic is afghan deportations from pakistan a looming human rights catastrophe um and then last but not least we're going to be speaking about mental health disorder um and how whilst doing a roundup of 2023 we've seen that one in five children and young people um actually have this as well so that's something that we're going to be discussing 
um, towards the end of the show. Getting into uh, straight into our first topic on uh, disease and hunger in Gaza and how other factors are raising the death toll in Palestine as well. So when infrastructure is destroyed and families are forced to live in close proximity to each other, disease spread becomes rampant. Damage and exposed sewage systems and a crumbling overburdened healthcare system causes outbreaks of diseases such as cholera. It is not just bombs that kill civilians. Rather, other factors indirectly raise the death toll in war, especially against children. And so we will be speaking about how um, the diseases spread during uh, displacements of uh, civilians. We'll be talking about what Islam teaches us uh, in this regard, what Islam teaches us about warfare uh, uh, in general. Um, statistically, how does it affect children in the, in the context of Palestinians, what we're seeing over there today, um, what the situation um, regarding sh- food shortage in uh, Gaza is, is looking like as well. So th- th- there are a few things that we want to discuss. And like I said, this is a very hot topic. So if anyone would like to get involved and uh, voice their own opinion, remember, uh, I did mention this in the introduction of the show as well. This is your radio station. And so we would love for you to voice your opinion as well. Do pick up the phone and give us a call. 0208-687-7878. So Jadis, getting getting straight into this, I think let's start by discussing why the spread uh, of disease uh, increases during a war or during displacement of uh, of civilians so we'll talk about a few uh, a few a few of these each i think uh, since there are uh, quite a few of them the spread of disease during times of war or displacement of civilians can be attributed to a combination of factors that create conditions conducive to the transmission of infectious diseases and here are some of the key reasons why we think uh, this happens and uh, first one being crowded un- and unsanitary conditions so war often leads to large populations being concentrated in confined spaces such as refugee camps or temporary shelters these crowded conditions make it easier for diseases to spread especially those diseases that are transmitted through respiratory droplets while coughing or contaminated water and food. Then there's the disruption of healthcare systems. During times of conflict or displacement, obviously, uh, we all know that healthcare systems may be severely disrupted or even overwhelmed. Hospitals and clinics may be damaged or inaccessible, and there may be even a shortage of medical supplies and personnel. This hampers the ability to provide timely and adequate medical care, increasing the risk of disease transmission. Then there's limited access to clean water and sanitation. Wars and displacements can lead to the breakdown of infrastructure, including water and sanitation systems. Displaced population uh, populations may lack access to clean water, proper sanitation facilities and hygiene resources, creating an environment conducive to the spread of waterborne and hygiene-related diseases. And of course, then there's malnutrition and weakened immune systems. While 
conflict and displacement often result in food shortages and inadequate nutrition malnutrition um, um, weakens the immune system making individuals more susceptible to infections additionally the stress and trauma associated with displacement can contribute to compromised immune function indeed i mean there's the list can go on and i mean for example if we look at forced migration and uh, population movements can also result you know in the displacement of disease you know vectors such as mosquitoes or or, or rodents you know this can introduce um, infectious agents to new areas or increase the the prevalence of disease already uh, present in 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 the region um displaced populations again may face challenges in accessing you know vaccination programs and routine healthcare services and you know this the, the limited access to vaccination healthcare services is 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 a very crucial point of course when this becomes limited then uh, when access becomes limited then of course you know, lo- logically speaking and we, we we all know what what will happen next you know this can lead to a decline in you know immunization coverage increasing the the vulnerability of individuals to 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 vaccine preventable diseases now um after that then of course we have the breakdown of law and order now along with the, with the displacement of communities can hinder the implementation of public health uh, measures such as uh, disease surveillance uh, quarantine and and contact tracing you know this makes it difficult to control the spread of infectious diseases now again all of this has a huge psychological uh, stress as well and the stress and, and and trauma associated with conflict and and displacement um can impact uh, can have an effect on 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 mental health and and prolonged stress may uh, uh, can you know weaken uh, make the body frail uh, make the body's uh, weaken the body a body's ability to to resist um and refrain from uh, or fight against infections you know and this can contribute to or you know can lead to the spread of um diseases so basically with all of this and um if we, if in a nutshell if we look at it in in, in summary the, the 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 combination of overcrowded and unsanitary conditions uh disruption of healthcare services uh limited access to essential uh essentials like um uh, the the things that we need like clean water and nutrition and the displacement of of populations and the, the disease vectors all contribute to the increased spread of diseases during times of war or or displacement of you know civilians now this is uh, you know addressing the, these factors you know requires uh, coordinated efforts from humanitarian organizations governments and the international community to to provide to give essential important uh, needed healthcare sanitation and and support for affected uh, populations most certainly and i mean when we look at the islamic teachings of war the holy prophet of islam may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him when he when he was given permission from god almighty to fight defensive wars not just to defend islam but like islam's uh, like the holy quran states to defend synagogues uh, cloisters uh, all other places of worship as well hmm. um it was at that time when uh, the, the 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 muslims would be marching forward and the holy prophet of islam may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him would instruct them to make sure that they do not cut down any fruitful trees 
do, that they do not uh, destroy inhabited areas, that they do not slaughter any of the enemy's sheep, cow, or camel, except for food, that they do not um, spoil the cultivated fields and gardens, that they do not slaughter the cattle, that they do not get involved with the uh, the elderly, the children, the women. All of these things, if there's any, if there's a water well, then they shouldn't damage that or 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 break that or anything of that sort. It it was simply just to defend themselves. It wasn't to uh, overcome the enemy, which often is the case in war. But the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he instructed the Muslims and the Muslim army that you need to ensure that these conditions are met. And we can see the reason why. If uh, these conditions are met, I mean, if we take the 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 the, the conflict in in Gaza, uh, if we uh, talk about that, then th- th- so many civilians would not be getting harmed, would not be losing their lives, and that is why it's so essential that we look look after and look out for all of these things, these conditions that the Holy Prophet of uh, of Islam, Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, gave. <clears throat> because if we do not, then it is all, always going to be about overcoming the enemy. But that is not the case, and that that is not why um, the Muslims were allowed to 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 enter the battlefield, isn't it? Yes, indeed. I mean. When we look at all of these rules and everything that you've mentioned as well, the rules that um, the Holy Prophet may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him uh, uh, told the companions to follow when it comes to uh, defensive, when it comes to war, and and obviously in Islam we we believe that all the battles fought were of course defensive. The goal of of these principles was to ensure that you know the the military actions uh, were that were conducted. Uh, be conducted in a just and humane uh, manner, which was and and of course uh, in in uh, it helped in aided in you know minimizing harm to civilians and of course the environment. And this goes to show that there was no hatred or or malice, uh, uh, um, you know, like personal personal hatred or malice for the opposing uh, party. It was literally um, just. Uh, for the defensive of one, uh, the defense of oneself and the 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 church, uh, the, the the places of worship, be be it uh, churches or synagogues or temples or even a mosque, you know, it was to preserve this, pr- preserve the religious freedom of 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 uh, of, uh, of the people and the the humanity of people as well. It was to preserve all of this, and this is why. Of course, wars were fought, um, of course, as a defense. And these points, when someone, when any person uh, ponders over these, um, you know, they, they begin to realize that, of course, um, Islam um, had only resorted into defensive battle when there was no other option left. We have to, rem- we have to remember that when we study the history of Islam, the Holy Prophet spent a a, a large portion of year, uh, many years, in fact, uh, when when uh, in in Mecca, when when he was uh, uh, when when he was um, given the title of prophethood by Allah Almighty, he spent uh, by God Almighty, he spent a lot of time in Mecca, uh, where he where he and the followers, of course, they all faced uh, persecution, 
and uh, it was only when they were then commanded to migrate and when the 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 the, the other party had followed them and uh, you know wanted to persecute them even more and they took it outside Mecca and and uh, tried to disrupt the peace that is only then did the holy prophet uh, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him uh, retaliate um, in in a form of defensive war uh, defensive uh, to defend oneself, of course, because we know, as the Holy Quran says, and as and as we see in throughout history, that if they were not stopped, then they would not have only uh, they they would have continued the the the, uh, the other party, the disbelievers of Makkah, they would have continued to 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 uh, inflict harm on other places of worship, be it churches, synagogues, or temples. So this is one thing that we should remember when we. When we uh, when we speak about the defensive uh, battle uh, war of of um, uh, fought in, in in Islam as well, mm. um, just coming back to to today, how it affects the children, um, especially in the context of Palestinians. Um, when we're talking about children in conflict zones, including those in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian <coughs> conflict. Um, are particularly vulnerable to the adverse effects of war and displacement. It's important to note that specific statistics can vary over time and may be subject to different sources and methodologies. However, some general trends and concerns related to the impact of conflict on children, including Palestinians, include mortality and injuries. So children face an increased risk of mortality and injury during armed conflicts. There may be directly affected by violence including airstrikes shelling and ground combat there's displacement many palestinian children have experienced forced displacement either within the palestinian territories or as refugees in neighboring countries and displacement can lead to loss of homes disruption of education and exposure to unsanitary and unsafe conditions there's uh, access to education which we just touched on as well um, a, a psychosocial impact, um, which we addressed before, Jalisa, uh, you mentioned that, in which children in conflict zones often experience significant, uh, significant psychological distress, including anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, the loss of family members, exposure to violence, and the constant threat of danger contribute to these mental health challenges. Um, there's malnutrition and health issues where um, uh, where the limited access to food, clean water and healthcare services can result in malnutrition and increased susceptibility to diseases. And children may suffer from preventable illnesses due to inadequate nutrition and poor living conditions. Um, obviously, we see things like child soldiers as well in some Conflicts, children are recruited as child soldiers forced to participate in armed activities and subjected to physical and psychological trauma. Um, there's lack of humanitarian assistance where humanitarian aid may face challenges in reaching affected populations due to conflict-related restrictions and barriers. And this can limit access to essential services, including healthcare and nutrition programs. Um, and there are there are many other things as well which uh, can be addressed here, but I think most of them have been covered. Um, and the last one that we'll touch on is the impact on future opportunities, the long-term impact 
of conflict on children can affect their, their future children opportunities and development. Limited access to education, to healthcare, and to a stable environment may hinder their ability to reach their full potential. And it's important to approach these issues with sensitivity, recognizing the complex of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. <clears throat> Efforts to address the well-being of Palestinian children during and after conflict require a coordinated international response, including humanitarian assistance, protection measures, and even a commitment to promoting a lasting and peaceful resolution to the underlying issues. And, I mean, it's it's so important for us to note, isn't it, that this is not something which... Um, which 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 can be sorted out in in an instance or or just by let's say one individual or one body this it has to be a a a a a, a group um a kind of thing isn't it in which everyone gets involved and everyone um uh, tries to assist wherever possible i mean obviously the first thing would obviously be a ceasefire um, and um, I, I mean, I don't know why it's, it's taking so long for for uh, the countries to to sign that that agreement. But on top of that, after uh, God willing, when this does come to an end, um, there needs to be a lasting and peaceful resolution in which um, it's not just a momentary uh, momentarily thing, in which uh, it's just uh, for a short period, but rather there needs to be lasting peace. Indeed, indeed. I mean, of course, this is something that Islam lays great emphasis on, and you know, uh, um, s- strives to implement throughout the the um, throughout throughout the world. Um, the the the, the, the th- throughout the various lists that you that you uh, mentioned, um, the one that did stand out is um, the one was access to education, and one was the impact on the future op- opportunities. Now, of course, we know that. That the children who are who are being di- who, whose lives are being directly, you know, impacted or affected from this, um, the the whole the, this whole conflict, um, uh, and and you know we we pray to 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 God Almighty that you know that there that there are better days ahead, um, for for mankind and for for these children who are being uh, who are being impacted and affected by this. But we we see that. The, all of this has 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 had a great impact, a huge impact on the future on their future opportunities as well. For example, now schools, they may be may have been damaged or uh, repurposed for an, uh, for and be used in other manners. And this is something that we we um, if if you're if you if you're from the UK, then you've probably seen something like this happen when the COVID nineteen outbreak happened, and uh, a lot of hotels weren't in in use but they were being repurposed to house uh people who to to house um c- certain patients who needed uh, needed help so so uh, it's a very it's a very small uh, um it's it's something very small similarity there but it's something that we can imagine now imagine a person's as a child's school either being date being damaged a school where they where their future lies where they, their future uh, where where they can create bright futures for themselves imagine that school being damaged imagine that school being repurposed now imagine uh, the child who is now thinking that their future opportunities has been um uh, has, has 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 become uh, very limited 
this all this right um, uh, putting aside to to the to the whole every, everything else putting that aside all of this the, their future the the lack of uh, um, uh, the the opportunities that is now being is it will be handed over to them is a very worrying state because Islam emphasizes hugely greatly the the rights um of children and you know um the, the holy prophet may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him he he very clearly said that the best of you is one who gives good education um you know intellectual and moral uh, to his children now this is something that has been snatched away from those children who have been affected by this whole this conflict you know th- there's another 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 saying of the Holy Prophet where he said that the best penny a man spends is that um, on his children, uh, on his camel for the sake of Allah and on his friends for the sake of Allah. Now, again, um, you know, this is something that as as uh, we should as Muslims, of course, we should take our our time, uh, take to, to every every month where we put aside some some money so that we can spend on uh, those children who have been inflicted by this uh, conflict and who have been impacted by this conflict so that we can um in, in some in in one way we can um uh you know alleviate the 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 struggles that they have been going through and uh, give hope to, um, to them as well and, and and this is something that the the holy prophet made a peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and as being followers of the of the holy prophet and being and being muslims we we know that he he had great compassion for children, and and there are various prayers in the Holy Quran um, as well, and and as Muslims recite that are for children as well, and and the, just lastly, I would mention that the the Islamic perspective on education um, is so, like I've already mentioned again, is so great that you know the 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 uh, the Holy Prophet uh, in one occasion has said that a person who spends his life in pursuit of of knowledge in pursuit of education in, in, of that education and that knowledge which is beneficial to himself and mankind is um, a way of um, gaining uh, is in a sense <clears throat> excuse me is in a sense a way of gaining success in this life and in the hereafter and gaining Allah Almighty's pleasure so all of these factors look, must be looked at a whole and and uh, you know just just this enough is something for the world to think over and like you uh like summer like you mentioned that it's it's very it's a very sad state it's very uh it's a questionable state why it is taking so long for you know for the for the world to see that the only correct solution for this is to uh to bring about a ceasefire and not only just a ceasefire but after this making sure that all of those people who were um, afflicted, who were affected, who, who whose lives were impacted by this conflict, making sure that all of their lives, um, that they, they do have a better future, and not just leaving them, um, you know, uh, to 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 deal with or or pick the puzzles up for themselves and deal with uh, with it themselves. This is something as Muslims. This is something as human beings. As hum, as people of the same uh, race, as people of the the human race. When I say your race, I mean the human race. The people living in the same earth, the same world. We should always, as Islam states as well, we should always look out for our fellow uh, human brothers and sisters in humanity. 
Most certainly. And uh, I mean, there's there's so much more that we can address on this particular topic, um, but uh, time has gotten the better of us. We're, after the news, we're going to be talking about our second topic, uh, the Afghan deportations from Pakistan, a looming human rights catastrophe, a very interesting topic. Um, so do get involved and give us a call in that regard as well. Here is the 8 o'clock news. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. Just a quick time check for you. It is two minutes past eight on Tuesday, the 26th of December, 2023. Uh, if you are just tuning in, uh, then we were discussing disease and hunger in Gaza and how these kind of factors are also raising the death toll in Palestine. Um, now we're going to be addressing the Afghan deportations from Pakistan and how it's a looming human rights catastrophe. And last but not least, we will be discussing how one in five children and young people aged between 8 and 25 years of age had mental health dis- disorders during this year. So that's, uh, again, a very important uh, important topic which we will be addressing um, towards the end of the show as well. Getting straight into the second topic of ours, OHCHR is urging Pakistani officials to halt forced deportations of undocumented Afghan nationals, suggesting grave risk of uh, violations with reports suggesting mistreatment of refugees at the borders, forcing families to leave their homes at night and confiscation of livestock and money with more dire conditions awaiting them when they leave. What does Islam say regarding the treatment of our neighbours? That's something which we will be addressing uh, throughout this uh, this uh, this segment. We'll be talking about the timeline of Afghan refu- refugees in Pakistan, the Soviet invasion, December 1979, the war on terror, 2001, and the Taliban invasion um, two years ago as well. Um, and of course, a lot of other things which are related to this topic as well. But before we do so, we do have with us on the line our first guest for the show. We do have with us uh, Richard Bennett, uh, who is the UN Special Rapporteur here on Afghanistan and has served in Afghanistan in different capacities, including as the Chief of the Human Rights Service with the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan. He's also played a role in the promotion and protection of human rights in Afghanistan and supported the UN on a number of human rights issues, such as protection of civilians, transitional justice, child rights, rule of law, rights of people with disabilities, protection of human rights defenders, and a range of of economic, social and cultural rights. He's also a visiting professor um, um, and a humanitarian law in Sweden as well. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. 
Good morning, and thank you for having me on the breakfast show on this uh, for this important discussion. Oh, you're very welcome, and thank you for 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 being with us as well. We're talking about a very important um, topic here, um, like you mentioned as well, and we wanted your expertise on this as well. Um, being the uh, UN Special Rapporteur uh, on Afghanistan, how would human rights defenders be affected by deportation? What are some of uh, some some main human rights concerning uh, concerns in the country for vulnerable groups such as women right activists, uh, women right activists, and journalists? Well, let me say from the start that the main responsibility for this situation lies with Pakistan. Hmm. And um, as long ago as December 2021, UN experts wrote to Pakistan urging it to halt deportations until the circumstances and human rights situation in Afghanistan allow for safe and dignified return. And we've followed this up with press releases uh, uh, this year on the 17th uh, October Uh, calling on Pakistan to cancel its plans and on the 6th of December um, warning of the grave risk of violations upon return and noted that the illegal foreigners repatriation plan that Pakistan is invoking doesn't include provision for individual assessment of irreparable harm and the risk that may be faced by Afghan nationals who are forced to cross uh, the border. Now, Um, uh, There are particular groups um, that you have mentioned already. Um, uh, Most of uh, many of those um, uh, include uh, women and girls. And I note, of course, that girls above sixth grade uh, uh, are currently suspended from education in Afghanistan. um, And also women are suspended from university education. So those groups would lose their right to education, for example. And there are particular concerns about other groups, including human rights defenders, um, journalists, judicial officials, um, other members of the former republic's government, in particular the former security forces, as well as the elderly um, and other minorities, including um, uh, uh, people um, with disabilities, the, the systematic discrimination against women and girls in Afghanistan may amount to gender persecution. The majority of the Afghans pushed back will be women and are women and girls and will be seriously um, affected. And the Shia community remains at disproportionate risk of harm. And there have been six recent attacks, and some of those have been claimed by Daesh, known as ISKP, um, in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So perhaps I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, I mean, so, some very interesting things that you've mentioned. And just just keeping that in mind, of course, we, we spoke about uh, how important um, the the future generation and, of course, their studies and and their education is in the first hour of the show as well. Um, Af- Afghanistan has been an ast- uh, unstable country due to many factors such as a war, there's natural disasters and a crumbling economy as well. However, there have been 
well, we, what we want to understand is, have there been any improvements in the overall stability of the country? And, and where do you think uh, major improvements can occur to improve the livelihood of citizens over there? Well, of course, there are overall improvements in the stability of Afghanistan because the main protagonists to the conflict the Taliban and the international forces are no longer fighting. Mm. Uh, and the security forces of the Islamic Republic no longer exist. There are some continuing threats from, uh, from Daesh, as I mentioned, and other groups. Um, so there, that is one thing. The second, perhaps, is um, uh, that earthquakes droughts and so on and other natural events have contributed to an ongoing humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. And the social, economic and cultural rights of Afghans remains unfilled, unfulfilled due to lack of education uh, and generally to, to poverty. Um, uh, further, the Taliban are not recognized by the United Nations or its member states as a legitimate government. Uh, in addition, the banking system uh, isn't fully functional and the country's assets remain frozen. I think this, this, was re this situation was referred to, uh, this status quo was referred to by in a UN assessment uh, uh, last month as being uh, simply a situation that is not working. Um, uh, it's meaning that the people of Afghanistan uh, are continuing to, to suffer. So you ask about um, uh, improvements. And I think the first thing uh, that, uh, that must be done is to improve the lives of women and girls mm. in Afghanistan and to reverse the draconian policies that have uh, pushed them to the margins or as some people have said, including myself, erased them from public life um, in Afghanistan. We also have uh, concerns, and I mentioned them already, uh, about pressure on uh, Shia that I just mentioned mm. um, uh, that uh, have been uh, attacked by uh, Daesh and need better protection. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, as you may be aware, the Taliban, uh, soon after they took power in 2021, announced a general amnesty uh, for those who were involved with the uh, previous government. However, this does not this has not been fully respected, um, and there are uh, well documented by the UN and others hundreds of cases of uh, arbitrary arrests and detention, ill treatment and torture, uh, disappearances uh, and killings, um, in particular of uh, former members of the security forces. There's also uh, targeting of uh, human rights activists, including women protesters, who have been um, repeatedly arbitrarily detained uh, and sometimes ill-treated.
Mm, some some very important and uh, uh, pertinent issues that you've uh, you've addressed um, uh, over there. Just lastly, um, uh, another question, similar uh, in theme of uh, of how or the best ways in which uh, they can be helped, uh, and how our listener can also help whether it's directly or indirectly uh, with the displaced individuals or even the refugees um well i think they can be helped in at different levels at the very basic humanitarian level um uh, the um, humanitarian agencies the un and other international agencies are i'm i'm told and it's reported by the un um, uh, working cooperatively to um, assist with the Taliban, with the de facto authorities, to assist these uh, people uh, who have returned. So contributing um, funding uh, may help. There is a dire need for more resources. And I'm told that nearly 500,000 have already been pushed back. The, the numbers have dropped off in recent weeks that there, there, are, there is a reduction of those mm-hmm. being pushed over the border. And we need to remember, of course, that some of these people are not refugees. They've never lived in Afghanistan. They were born in Pakistan. They had yeah. businesses. I know you covered this, and houses. These, they, you covered this in your first hour, I understand. And around 80,000 of them have nowhere to go. Mm. So I think uh, basic humanitarian support is one thing. The second is... Uh, more uh, is to call on Pakistan to change its policy. Um, uh, I, I, I talked earlier about how uh, us um, UN special procedures experts have have called um, on them to do that, but also UNHCR um, uh, has also called um, uh, 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 for. Um, has issued a, a no-return advisory for Afghanistan. It did that in August 21. It renewed it in February this year, um, citing the uh, human rights uh, and humanitarian situation. And that applies to Afghans, irrespective of their legal status. It doesn't matter if they have documents or not. Mm. Um, and it's also um, in in violation of its responsibility uh, not to what is legally called uh, responsibility of non-refoulement. That is um, an absolute and non-derogable principle in international law, um, uh, especially in terms, in this case, of the torture convention which which which, uh, Pakistan has ratified. Um, I think uh, another point, and I just have two more short points, Mm -hmm. is... Um, uh, yeah, I, I think to call on um, uh, Pakistan to stop sending Afghans back and to provide them with documentation. Many Afghans, and I think you cover this already, um, have tried to get documentation in Pakistan and suffer uh, the obstacles in doing so, extreme expense and delays, uh, even though um, they may... Um, uh, they may be undocumented through no fault of their own. They may have had documents that have expired and not been uh, able administratively to renew them. And then finally, um, I think what people can do is acknowledge that Pakistan has taken a, 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 a share, has, has really 
shouldered the burden, uh, along with other countries in the region, of Afghan refugees for decades now, for, for more than 40 years. And that needs to be acknowledged. Um, they need to be perhaps appreciated for what they have done over the years. And in this case, countries uh, in the global north, in particular those that have been involved in fighting in, in uh, uh, Afghanistan or have been politically involved in contributing to the situation that Afghanistan finds itself in now, uh, ought to do more. They ought to both support Afghanistan and other neighboring countries, and they ought to take a greater share of Afghan refugees, particularly these most vulnerable categories um, that, that I mentioned, human rights defenders, um, uh, security forces from the previous uh, government, uh, uh, journalists, members of the judicial system. And, and uh, 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 there is a good deal more uh, that gov those governments can do. Mm. And perhaps your listeners could be raising that uh, in the countries where they're living, if yeah. they're living in those areas. Yeah. Yeah, I mean you're 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 absolutely right. It's all it's all about assisting where possible, and and it it does fall on the, res the as the responsibility of the neighbouring countries to really get involved um, and assist uh, wherever they can. I mean, Islam has laid so much importance on uh, the rights that your neighbour has. There was actually a time in which the Holy Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he thought that the neighbours, um, because the uh, angel Gabriel would come s and, s and talk about the rights of neighbours so much to him that he thought that they would actually be Heirs to to whatever to the, the inheritance as well, uh, and that's the kind of importance that Islam lays on uh, the, the, our neighbours, and that's why the neighbouring countries, like you mentioned, you began with uh, Pakistan as well and ended with that as well. That uh, it's essential for the neighbouring countries to really assist to allow the, the the refugees to come in and give them a place of shelter um, and refuge and really look after them as well. Um, Richard, thank you for, for being with us. Um, wonderful to have you on and listen to your insight in regards to this uh, this, this deeply uh, important uh, topic as well. Uh, we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Uh, peace be upon you. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, uh, thank you very much, um, uh, Tasha Kaur, and uh, uh, Shukran. And uh, thank you very much, especially for your last comment about the responsibility of the Islamic a community to its neighbours. That's extremely important in this situation. Many yeah. thanks indeed. You're very welcome. Thank you. And we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Um, 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. That was Richard Bennett, who uh, is the UN Special Reporter on Afghanistan and has served in Af Afghanistan in different capacities, including uh, as the Chief of the Human Rights Service with the UN uh, Assistance Mission in Afghanistan and a huge number of other roles in promotion and protection for human rights uh, and other such things as well. Uh, lovely to, to, to have him on. Indeed, I mean a very, very um, great conversation and good, good um, answers to the questions as well, and something very important that we, uh, our listener, I hope, um, does take on board and 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 uh, you know look at too as, as well. Um, when we we when we look at the 
the timeline of the the Afghan um, refugees in Pakistan, um, which uh, when we look at, we see from 1979 uh, and then all the way to 2001 and then 2021 as well. Um, th- there are v- various things in this where we, we, from the time we, from the time perspective, which we will talk about. But before we do that, we do have with us um, uh, our uh, next guest, who uh, Mr. Iltaf, who is a journalist with uh, Kabul Now and um, a US-based online newspaper covering a South Central Asia region. Uh, he is also an independent researcher focusing on Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, Mr. Iltaf, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Walaikum salam, thank you, thank you for having me. Um, thank, you, thank, you very, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we are indeed talking about a very um, important topic. Um, just getting straight into the, the, the questions that we have is... Um, the situation in Afghanistan regarding the uh, the the the, uh, the Taliban has become well known uh, since 2021, uh, most prominently when a ban was imposed on girls' um, education, um, and this is something I believe we spoke about on the Voice of Islam uh, in 2021 as well. Um, what, what is the situation like as of this moment regarding women's rights, and uh, are we seeing any uh, improvements? Well, um, actually, uh, it's very sad to start with this question because uh, because there's no sign of any changes in the dire situation of women and girls in Afghanistan under the Taliban rule, and the situation is getting uh, grimmer and more brutal every day. Since the ban of girls' secondary education, as you mentioned, the Taliban, according to Human Rights Watch, has issued over 35 um, edicts and decrees virtually erasing women from public life. The group's um, draconian gender laws, which critics say account for gender appetite, have removed women from many government jobs and working with the international uh, groups and communities, including UN agencies. Um, additionally, women are required to cower in a burqa which, uh, and, and be accompanied by a mahram, a male companion, and they are also banned from parks, gyms, um, uh, beauty parlors, public baths, and other social premises. Um, the Taliban regime, um, as it has shown um, um, uh, since uh, overtaking power um, more than two years ago in Afghanistan, um, has been repeatedly condemned and criticized for its drastic gender policies. The international community and the UN have made women's rights to education one of the shopping points for the isolated Taliban's inclusion in the global community. But given the Taliban, what the Taliban really is, uh, you know, in a ultra conservative, um, uh, you know, uh, um, extremist and, and fanatic, uh, um, oh, which be its fanatic ideology and and in and, 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 and a very strict tribal code, uh, code there is no sign, um, at least to now, um, that should indicate that the Taliban are relenting or or, or changing in, in, in any positive way. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, hearing that there is no improvement in the, the, the ban that was imposed on the girls' education, I mean, it's quite sad because, of course, you know, in Islam, we know that the the education and the right to to knowledge is a is a very it's a basic human right, and it's something that is very much 
uh, stated highlighted in Islam that you know education is something that all uh, whether it be men or women should uh, go out there and seek and 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 uh, you know uh, attain that knowledge which is benef- beneficial for themselves and which is beneficial for mankind as well and of course uh, we know that the the wife um, the of the holy prophet May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, Hazrat uh, Hazrat Aisha. She was uh, she was known as a as as one of the greatest scholars of Islam. Who even some companions would come to 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 learn from her. You know, after the demise of the, the uh, of the Holy Prophet, a, a lot of a lot of the the hadith are are, are um, you know mentioned um, uh, from uh, narrated by her as well. So I mean, it's, it's something that Islam. Lays great emphasis on you know education. It's quite sad to see that uh, the, the ban that there was a ban in the first place, and 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 that there's there's uh, very little improvement going on. Um, just 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 moving on to 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 the last question that we have is that um, you 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 co-founded the the uh, the the Rahila Foundation after the the tragedy struck your family uh, could you could you explain what this foundation is and and how it came to be and what uh, resources it provides for for afghans um you know let's start from 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 uh, where did it begin on august uh, 15 uh, 2018 uh, a suicide bomber struck an education center in dashti barchi neighborhood in western part of kabul um, uh, the uh, suicide attack killed and injured hundreds of teenage Shihazara um, students, mostly girls. Among the victims were my 70-year-old uh, cousin, uh, Rahil Aminji, uh, who, like her classmates, were, were determined and passionate about education um, to eventually, you know, pass the... Um, National entrance university exam and enter university and study her favorite field study, um, but unfortunately um, her dream was cut short. But as you say, to honor her life and dreams and that of her classmates, uh, we established Rahila Foundation, a non-profit grassroots organization dedicated to promoting quality education and gender equality through educational capacity building and advocacy programs. Um, but sadly. Uh, you know, its, uh, its existence was short-lived. Uh, following the return of the Taliban, we were forced to close down the physical operations of the organization in Kabul because of fears of re- retaliation and also a shrinking space, um, you know, for, um, um, for having such an organization that promotes quality education, that promotes gender equality, it's because they were not in line with Taliban's ideology, and, and there were also some other, you know, factors, um, including lack of resources, that uh, we had to take a desperate decision. But during this short period of time, it um, it had um, a well-established library and resources center where uh, students would come and study and and and, and, and conduct their, um, you know, research, um, and and we had. Uh, the, um, the scholarship program that at speak provided over 80 and the scholarship uh, opportunities for students um, mainly coming from the um, marginalized communities and we also had a advocacy program um, that advocated um, for equal rights uh, and equal treatment of, of, uh, of women and girls 
and, 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 and making sure that um, education is accessible to all, despite gender, despite um, um, any other um, you know, uh, differences, um, especially in a context where, um, um, where, where, where women and girls were not um, you know, um, viewed uh, you know, as, 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 as equally as, as boys. So um, it was such a kind of organization. And there's all things, uh, you know, the mission of the organization came from how Rahla dreamed. So it was all inspired by her dreams, um, which were, uh, you know, written down um, in, in, in a diary that he held so, uh, you know, um, uh, loved in, in, uh, with, with herself. So, yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's it's, it's uh, great to hear uh, your efforts to uh, making you know education, um, you know, easily accessible for all. Um, you know, thank you for for you know sharing sharing your story with us, and thank you uh, and and all the best um, with um, the the Rahila Foundation. Uh, we do hope you have a a wonderful week and a, a a beautiful day and a wonderful week ahead. Thank you very much for joining us on the breakfast show. Thank you for having me. That was Mr. Ildaf, a journalist with Kabul Now, a US-based online newspaper covering the South Central Asia region. Yep, uh, some very interesting things which were addressed there. Um, coming back to the, the timeline that we touched on uh, before having our guests on, um, in April 1979, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan seized power of the country in a coup and implemented radical reforms. These were socialist reforms which included redistribution of land, education rights to girls and boys, and women's rights, all of which were met with strong opposition from certain conservative areas of Afghan society. Um, And due to the civil unrest and internal stability, the PDPA um, sought help from the Soviet Union, who had friendly ties with Afghanistan since the early 1900s. However, this alignment caused tension with neighbouring countries such such as uh, countries as Afghanistan was a region of significant geopolitical interest. Um, And of course, the neighboring countries had ties with the US and the UK. Um, then uh, the if we go, if we go to 2018, uh, well, the, uh, 2001 <coughs> first, the following the 9/11 attacks triggered another wave of displacement as people fled the conflict. At the peak of the displacement, the number of Afghan refugees in Pakistan were estimated to be several million. Um, then fast forward to 2018, the UN documented uh, some of the key statistics regarding the displacement of Afghans. Um, they found that in 2018. Alone, Afghanistan saw the highest ever recorded civilian deaths, including the highest ever recorded number of children killed in the conflict. Nearly 11,000 casualties, which included 3,804 deaths and 7,189 injuries. More than 360,000 internally displaced by the conflict. And this is a 5% increase in overall casualties and 11% increase in civilian deaths. Um, and then in 2021, as our guests have mentioned as well, the Taliban takeover of <clears throat> Afghanistan caused a spark in movement once again, 
since the start of 2021, according to the government estimates, at least 1.6 million Afghans have arrived in neighboring host countries. And this is despite borders being so tightly managed as well. Um, Of course, we can see that uh, many Muslim countries throughout the world host communities of migrants, refugees and internally displaced people, the IDPs. and for for example, Jordan and Syria that have uh, accepted hundreds of thousands of refugees and, and provided them with the greatest uh, legal rights as well. And we'll be speaking about, um, uh, if, if, if time permits, how obtaining documents for right to stay has been so difficult for refugees and what kind of setbacks um, in general they are facing as well regarding job opportunities, education and housing. Uh, but before we do so, we do have with us on the line uh, Dr. Lisa Schuster, who is a UK-France-based sociologist who spent seven years in Afghanistan and she works on asylum policy and forced migration. assalamu peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Nice to be here. And it's a pleasure to have you on as well. Um, uh, Dr. Lisa, migration and deportation are influenced by many factors, of course. And what we wanted to understand from you, uh, first of all, was that what, what are some of some factors that cause the deportation of refugees out of countries? And why do you think this is occurring in Pakistan now? So I think possibly um, your other two guests might be able to answer to what's happening in Pakistan at the moment. I guess the point that I would like to make is that very often the deportation of um, people who have sought refuge is due to internal factors, so factors within the country. If we turn to the UK at the moment and the plan to deport people to Rwanda, for example, Mm or to other countries, is very much driven by internal politics in the UK. So it's a, it usually occurs when there is no need for uh, labour, for persons to come into the country, when governments calculate that the benefit that they get from hosting is not sufficient to warrant the so-called costs. But also, more importantly, it usually a distraction. It means that something is happening in the country, so in the UK or in Pakistan or in Iran, and to deflect attention from the government's failings, governments choose to focus attention on those people who are not part of the citizenry, not considered part of the nation. Um, And so very often, uh, if countries like Pakistan or Iran or the UK are choosing to deport, it's worth looking um, to see what's actually occurring in the country and why are they tra- what are they trying to deflect attention from. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've studied uh, the consequences of uh, deportations of Afghans and their, their families. Um, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, could you explain to us some of your findings and what challenges you've witnessed firsthand by these families? And, and we also want to understand from that is that are there any groups likely to be more affected than others? For example, um, women and girls? So um, <clears throat> when I began looking at the consequences of deportations, I was initially looking at the consequences of deportation for those who had been deported from Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I found that there was a great deal of stigma attached to those deportations, largely because 
when families send people abroad, when people travel great distances, it's very expensive and it requires a huge investment. So when people are deported, most often they return with very little. They don't have uh, capital. Um, they may not have household goods, though some do, especially if they're returning short distances. And so <clears throat> they're at a great disadvantage when they return. This means they find it hard to establish themselves, but also if they are returning to extended family, they may be a burden on that family. And so for that reason, the welcome may be limited. Mm. It also depends how long people have been away. Um, often those who have been, for example, in Iran for many years, when they returned to Afghanistan, were treated um, with certain amount of discrimination. There was a feeling, we stayed here through the conflict and you left and now you want to come back and you're taking your jobs. So it's very much about this disrupted sense of belonging that occurs. So deportation has an impact on the individuals who are deported. It has an impact on their families. It may have an impact on the community if the community is not in a position to support those people who are being returned. Um, and it can cause tensions. Hmm. Yeah, and then I must... I must... <clears throat> you also asked about particular groups. Yeah. Um, that varies. And I, it's very difficult to to speak to, um, to 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 speak to all people who are deported from all countries. Um, so one of the things that was noted in relation to women and girls was that deportation to Afghanistan, for example, was more difficult to women for women who had been returned from Iran because, and now I'm speaking about a period that was 15 to 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Life was easier for women in Iran than it was in Pakistan. So many of those women in uh, Pakistan were living under conditions that were similar to Afghanistan <clears throat> or even more difficult. Mm -hmm. So the return to Afghanistan was not necessarily as difficult for those women. Whereas those women who were returning from Iran found the harsh conditions in Afghanistan difficult to adapt to. But then there's also differences in terms of ethnicity. There are differences in terms of disability. Um, so <clears throat> for all of the reasons that um, deportation is difficult for individuals, those difficulties are exacerbated by issues such as gender and disability, and in some cases, ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, no, no, you're you're completely right, and uh, we we would have actually liked to to continue on the conversation as well because it is such a interesting and important topic to to address here for the benefit of our listener as well. Uh, but unfortunately, time has gotten the better of us. Um, we hope to speak with you again if we do, if we do another show or segment on this. Um, but until then, Jazakla, thank you for for being with us, for answering our questions, and sharing your insight uh, into this topic. We hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Peace be upon you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.
0208-687-7878 is the number for you. That was Dr. Lisa Schuster, uh, who is a UK-France-based sociologist who spent seven years in Afghanistan um, and works on asylum policy and forced migration, uh, sharing her thoughts with us. Um, at least some, some very interesting um, things which uh, we've covered with uh, our esteemed guests as well. Um, I think just quickly, th- there is a lot to cover um, because it is such an important and an interesting topic um just quickly before moving on to the next segment i think um why has obtaining documents for right to stay been so difficult for refugees well for many it is difficult to obtain legal documentation and many countries refuse undocumented individuals and thus proving their refugee status is often a huge hurdle Discrimination from the local population due to things like skin, colour, prejudice, stereotype. Those from Afghanistan often must prove that they are not associated with terror organisations as well. There's a lack of healthcare resources to help refugees who often experience different psychological issues caused by the trauma of their displacement. Often the local population cannot relate to these individuals, so the doctors and health other healthcare professionals can't really support them. There's often refugee camps uh, uh, um, which are overcrowded, which lead to health and safety concerns, which we addressed in the first segment as well. And there's a language barrier as well, isn't it, which causes issues in education, obtaining health care, safety, avoiding displacement from their families as well. Um, I think just lastly, uh, before moving on to this, the, the last segment for the day, um, we can see that the Holy Quran has described uh, and covered the rights of one's neighbours and it has equated the the right of closest relation with that of the right of a person whom he only knows as a neighbour or one whom he seldom sees. It is difficult to some extent to ex- elaborate and express the Arabic word used for neighbour that is a kinsman and the neighbour that is a stranger. It says kinsman, it, uh, um, it also means the neighbour that lives near and is kind. The neighbour that is a stranger may also mean a neighbour living at a distant place and is not kind. And of course, we see that uh, Allah the Almighty and Islam, it teaches us that a neighbour is not only uh, he or she who lives to the right or left of you or to the to opposite uh, opposite your house but rather this is uh, this is something if we if we exacerbate it and talk about it from a real islamic lens we can see that this is the the a neighboring person can also be someone who is in na- in a neighboring village someone who is in a neighboring city or a neighboring country or na- even neighboring continent and so this whole world we i mean we know it as a, as a global village anyway and and so our rights that we owe to the person who lives uh, on the right or left of us is not just limited to that those couple of meters uh, fr- from the right or left rather this can actually be thought of as as miles and miles on end as well um, and uh, I mean, like I said, we can talk about this um, uh, for, uh, for, a, much, for uh, a lot longer. But unfortunately, uh, time has gotten the better of us, and we do need to move on as well. Um, Janice, what's what's the last topic for for today? Yeah, so t- the last topic, of course, is a very important topic as well. Um, one in five children and young people aged 
8 to 25 had a mental health disorder in 2023. Uh, so just a gist of the story, that is the the Mental Health of Children and Young People Survey, which is known as MHCYP, uh, presents its findings from a report showing that in 2023, one in five children and young people had a probable mental health disorder in 2023 in alone. This was broken down as uh, just twenty point uh, around twenty point three percent of eight to sixteen year olds, twenty three point three percent of seventeen to nineteen year olds, and twenty one point seven percent of twenty to twenty five year olds. Unfortunately, more than one in four children aged eight to sixteen years with a um, probable mental disorder had a parent financially unable for their child to take part in activities outside school or um, college with uh, one in 10 with um, you know, 10.3 percent of, of those unlikely to have uh, a mental health um, a, a mental disorder uh, so again just just to, to mention this is this is a very important topic and uh, you know mental mental health uh, is a very 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 um important topic for for uh, us uh, throughout the world and 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 uh, looking at the statistics as well it, it just highlights how uh, essential it is um needed um we we have a lot of uh, points that we'll be uh, talking about from you know, how how the financial situation of a family affects uh, children who are likely to have mental health disorder and um, you know uh, uh, this, the, the findings shown in, in, in various reports as well. Um, but before we do get into um, into this, we do have with us our um, we have we have with us our guest for this segment. Uh, before sorry before we do before we do get into this this is a very important topic and anyone who does want to um you know g- g- uh, ask ver- uh, any questions they may do so um hit us up uh, on our uh, social medias on x as well and they can get to us um uh, call us on our line as well and uh, so 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 we have with us professor Stephen Scott, uh, who is a um, professor of child health and behavior at the Institute of Psychiatry, uh, Psychology and Neuroscience, uh, King's College, London. He works as a consultant psychiatrist specializing in conduct problems and adoption and fostering. He enjoys carrying out uh, trials uh, of uh, trials of parenting interventions to improve child outcomes in both the attachment and antisocial behavior domains. He is an author of the best-selling introductory textbook, Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Um, Professor Scott, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much. Peace to you as well. Oh, thank you very much, and thank you very much for joining us. And um, we we are speaking about a very um, important topic. One in five children um, and young people aged eight to twenty five had mental health disorder in twenty twenty three. That is a topic, and it's a very essential topic. Um, of course, um, just just uh, having some some questions that we would uh, like to ask you. Um, what are or what disorders are most uh, common in young children and uh, adolescent? Um, eight to twenty-fives, and what are some of the most common causes for these? Thank you. 
Yes, and just <clears throat> as a starter to say that maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, we didn't talk about these things. Mm. So it is great that we're now talking about them because people are just considered wimps or weak or having a breakdown or some general term. <clears throat> so it is good that this has come into the light. Um, yeah. So the commonest disorders can be divided into three categories, emotional, behavioral, and developmental. By emotional, I mean kids with quite severe anxiety. It could be social anxiety. It could be fear of going out of the house. Um, and depression, uh, low mood, particularly amongst uh, teenagers, <clears throat> commoner in girls, but happens in boys. And that would, I would include the rarer things like obsessive compulsive disorder and anorexia there. Behavioral is <clears throat> ADHD, uh, inattention, restlessness, bouncing around all the time. And a very important category called oppositional defiant disorder. These are kids who are persistently naughty. Um, just saying, yours, de laws, not the paying rules, being rude, fighting, mm. arguing all the time. Mm. They do very badly. And the third category is developmental. <clears throat> I'm thinking of autism here and kids with generalized learning disabilities. So those are the big common categories. <clears throat> Causes of them. Um, again, knowledge has changed. Genetics is really quite important. You have a genetic predisposition to both anxiety and depression. Of course, you can then have events. Your parent dies, uh, your parents split up, uh, a teenager gets done by their boyfriend or girlfriend, they get bullied, um, <clears throat> or also they get demeaned by their parents. That can be important. In the behavioral domain, ADHD is pretty much genetic, but oppositional, if, if parents give in to their kids all the time, you can have a little prince who um, rules the house and gets their way. You're mm. teaching them to become really rather cocky and difficult in mm. the rest of their life, including at school. Developmentally, again, the knowledge has moved on. There was a time when it was thought that refrigerator mothers caused autism, but that's not true. It's genetic. Um, so we've learned a lot about these things, and that's why I moved into this field from paediatrics looking after premature babies, because I find it so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes, in, indeed, indeed. Um, uh, what are the, the long-term effects of <coughs> having uh, mental health disorders at a young <coughs> age? And, and how sure. do these, how, uh, sorry, how, how do these you know, present um, in, in adult life as well? How do they show yeah. about well, 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 let's talk about the two big categories, the emotional ones and the behavioral ones. The emotional mm. ones, are, first of all, half will grow out of it, especially if they get good early treatment. Mm. Um, but in general, what we talk about is the effect on the subjective feelings of the individual. You feel depressed, you feel anxious, oh, I don't want to go out, all oh, my friends think I look funny, I'm going to keep my mouth shut, I'm not going to go to that party or or even go to school. Um, but then in adulthood, um, they, may, they might be depressed. Um, and then there's how you function. Are you able to have a relationship, have friends? Are you able to go to work? And the more severe ones can impair your ability to have satisfying relationships and to go to work. And, and that, is, that, is, that is sad. And the behavioral side, um, uh, the, particularly the oppositional ones, do pretty badly. Their rate of um, bad outcomes, what do I mean by that? Misusing drugs? not getting a job, leaving school without any qualifications, um, being rather violent in their relationships. Uh, the probability of those things isn't up by um, double or something like that. It's three or four times. So mm. it, it is a huge risk, and they are, have miserable lives. I've visited some of them in their not very attractive flats, just playing video games all the time. They're not having a life, mm. and, and that is sad, particularly when we can do something about it. Yeah, yeah. And um, in, in younger children, uh, what uh, what should parents and you know caregivers look for at, as uh, early signs of anxiety and antisocial behaviour? Yeah. 
Well, antisocial behaviour is obvious because you see, because the child will be in your face saying, I'm not going to have this dinner. I'm not going to go to bed. Um, I'm not going to come off the PlayStation. Um, so that is fairly easy to spot. When is it worrying? When it's different and it, it, the, the severity of it and the fact it's lasted for more than six months. All kids can go through a stage when they're a bit uppity. Um, and, but if it's, if it's that and also if it, it is pervasive, if it affects school, you're hearing bad school reports about they're getting into trouble at school, then you should really take care. Um, anxiety, it, it, this is a harder one because sometimes kids will be anxious and they won't um, show it necessarily. It, it, it's in their things. You'll see, oh, they don't seem to want to go out with their friends or they're a bit worried. They start having tummy aches on Sunday night before they do go to school on Monday morning. Um, but uh, so uh, what you should do, um, well, uh, this is another question. Talk to your kids. Have a nice chat with them about what's going on. How was their day? It sounds mm -hmm. obvious, doesn't it? But a lot of parents don't have time to do that. They're busy. They're working. Um, calm down, sit down, have a little chat, have a little play with your kid and find out what's in their mind. Very helpful because, of course, they could be being bullied and things like that. Mm, yes, indeed. And, and, and they might be ashamed or frightened to tell you. Indeed, indeed. I mean, I mean, th this this point that you mentioned that uh, we should, you know, uh, sit them down and talk to them and ask them how their day was. This is something that reminds me, um, on on various occasions and often, in fact, um, uh, you know, his, his Holiness, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mizam Masood Ahmad, on various occasions, he is asked by various you know parents on how they can raise their children in 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 the best way, and he often there's one thing that stands out a lot where. Um, with those children obviously who go to school he 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 very much uh, encourages his parents to to form a bond with them of uh, of uh, and of course also uh, when they come home from school someone should be there to talk about them talk about their day as well and this is when you mentioned this uh, what you just mentioned right now it, it just clicked uh, to me as well that this is something that uh, you know is is very much encouraged uh, within us as well um, as uh, of course as human absolutely. beings and, and absolutely so so I come across well first of all I come across a lot of Islam and African patients but also I spent a long time at the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel with quite a lot of Bangladeshi mm. um, <clears throat> families and I had I like that tradition of having family meal together yeah. that is a time when you can talk indeed indeed um, um, so so the other thing I would say is during lockdown because parents couldn't get this advice face to face I developed a, an online parenting program which they may be interested called parenting matters they can find it at parentingmatters.co.uk so what I would say is important in bringing up kids is love and limits we've talked about the love bit talking to your kids, making a stronger attachment to them, showing an interest in what they're doing. Even 10 minutes play a day is great. But they need limits too. It isn't all peace and love and they can do whatever they want. Hmm. They need to resolve. No, calmly, not you stupid turn and say, you've <laughs> got to go to bed now, but just, I'm sorry, you've got to go to bed now. I'm going to take away your PlayStation, turn off the telly, whatever hmm. it is. The limit is just as important as the love, both and. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, just lastly, what can uh, caregivers and educa educators do to reduce the risk of mental health disorder in young people? And how could how how could early intervention prevent mental health disorder becoming more severe? Yeah, well, first of all, I wanted to say that there are barriers to getting professional help because only 30% of kids with a disorder get any kind of treatment for child and adolescent mental health services. That is shocking. We should all jumping up and down. You wouldn't allow that for epilepsy or asthma or something. Um, so when politicians talk about tax cuts, they often mean tax cut, mean cuts to services in the NHS. We've got to stand up for our kids. Charities can't fill that gap. Parents can um, 
as we've talked already, listen to their kids, promote their strength. It isn't just about cutting out the bad, if you like. It's promoting the good. Mm. I really like the way you play, play football. Do that. You're really nice with your friends. Mm. Yeah. Give them credit for what they're doing well. Thank you for not hitting your brother and being nice to him, um, rather than just a, a whole bunch of criticism. Um, give them attention when they're doing things well. Promote their activities out of school. It might be a musical instrument, might be football, whatever it is. It might be sewing, uh, cooking do some cooking with your kid and, and, and spotting what they're doing well. Promoting strength has been shown to help build up resilience. So when, as inevitably will happen, in either as children or when they change school in the secondary school, they come across tough times, this will promote their inner strength and their resilience. Hmm. So that's what you can do. And also teachers, talk to the teachers. Unfortunately, teachers, I've talked to recent graduates from teacher training colleges, Sometimes they've only had half a day or no time on mental health disorders. So bone up about it and get to know. Be confident in your judgments uh, yourself. And as I say, give them, give the kids love and limits, and they will do quite well. Indeed, indeed. Uh, great points. Uh, great points for our listeners to to remember and to inculcate. Uh, and um, it, was, it was very, very interesting. Very good uh, talking with you, Professor Stephen Scott. Uh, thank you very much for for joining us. Uh, um, my pleasure, and I wish you all the best. And yeah, and as I say, parenting matters is the name of our program. If people find it useful, indeed, indeed, that's that's awesome. Um, thank you very much for joining us, and have yes, a lovely great. day ahead. You too. Thank you. Bye bye now. Bye. bye. Thank you. That was uh, Professor Scott, who is a uh, professor of child health and behaviour at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience, King's College, London. A very interesting um, discussion. Indeed, very good points mentioned um, that what we can do um, to, to, to raise uh, our children and, 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 and it's to see the early signs of anxiety or, or you know, mental health disorder and how we can go about in, you know, in helping them and raising them in the best uh, manner. Most certainly. Um, when we, if we, if we go to the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazim Zabashidin Mahmoud Ahmad, <coughs> Sorry, may Allah be pleased with him. <clears throat> Uh, who was actually the son uh, and second successor of the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian, um, may um, um, upon whom be peace. And he wrote a an exceptional book um, by the name of The Way of the Seekers, in which uh, which can be found and read online for completely free of charge uh, on alislam.org. A l i s l a m dot o r g alislam. Uh, which I would encourage all of our uh, uh, listeners to to go out and read, because it is an exceptional book in which it gives you step by step guidance um, that parents should follow. Uh, this is from the before the birth of the child as well. So even when the mother is pregnant, um, even at that time, what the mother, what the father, what they should keep in mind, the things that they should do to to encourage. And uh, to bring about the best of that child in its future as well, um, and this is something that we should all be be reading and following and adopting in our day to day lives. It's not just limited to pregnancy, of course. It goes on further uh, and teaches you how to feed, when to feed, how to clean, all of these different things. And this is actually a a a perfect guidance for us to 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 follow in this regard as well. That's all the time that we have for today. Jazakallah and us. Assalamu alaikum. Here's the 9 o'clock news.